Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Heltz. This episode, we'll be wrapping up Dream Country, the third volume of Sandman Stories. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do a lot in this wrap up episode as we usually do. We're gonna we're gonna start by looking at Dream. Usually we do Dream's character arc here, but in this case, because it's a short story collection, I think we're gonna talk a little bit more about the things we learn about Dream's backstory. Uh, we've picked out a couple themes to talk about as well. We will take a look at the volume as a whole, the introduction, the epigraph, and uh, and so on. And then uh, uh, at the end of the episode, we will do uh, some picking of favorites favorite issues, favorite characters, favorite panels, that whole thing. Uh, should be a lot of fun, uh, even though this is only a four-issue book. Uh, I actually find myself really interested in thinking about these four short stories in relationship with each other. Yeah, it's an interesting collection of stories. You know, it's it's a fun little collection of things, and it, it's, it's in many ways just like an anthology, right? Because we've got four disparate stories. There are some themes and motifs we'll talk about that they kind of run throughout all of them, but we don't have almost any characters that are shared amongst the stories, and there's no one character who appears in every story directly. Right, including Dream. Yeah, including dreams. So, um, <laughs> yeah, we should uh, we should start by talking about dreams. So, Brent, you're going to take the the lead on this. What are uh, some of the the key points that we get about dreams' backstory in this volume? And and if you've detected a kind of arc here, I have not. But if you've detected one, I would I'd love to hear it. Well, um, starting off in Calliope, we found out that Dream um, had a relationship with Calliope, and that he has a son with her. When Calliope begins, Dream is imprisoned at the time, but by the end of it, he has been released. And it could be we don't see kind of any kind of the arc of his you know character development appearing in the comic. But with the backdrop we've already seen him in elsewhere, it may be that he is more willing to intercede somewhat on Calliope's behalf um and get involved with helping to try to free her because of his own frustration with being imprisoned he he more or less says as much um to richard maddock but there's a couple important things i think we get from calliope in addition to learning that dream has had a relationship um uh, that resulted in a child um with a mythological figure we also discover um it kind of builds out more of the universe. You know, we already had the Hecate, um, but it builds out more of the universe um, in terms of what mythological figures actually exist in some capacity, right? Um, here we have something from Greek mythology that, you know, directly exists, um, and he has interacted with that person years before. Um, and that kind of continues a little bit in the one comic where Dream doesn't make an appearance, actually, Calliope at the, the or, um, facade, in which um, Death talks about um, her interactions with Egyptian gods and mythological beings from Egypt, uh, from ancient Egypt. And that kind of further builds out this universe in which it's like, no, all of these things that there have been, you know, mythologies about are encompassed within the mythology and the cosmography basically of Sandman. Right. 
And I think that then that kind of even comes to the fore as well in the story of A Thousand Cats, in which the dream cat explains kind of the power of ideas that mortal humans have or mortal cats have to reshape reality. So we're getting a lot of things here about there are these beings that are more powerful. The endless are amongst but kind of sit above them. You know, death will be the last one to close out and come for each of the gods as they finally, you know, leave. But we also still have the important role that mortals play, which kind of back trips towards some of what Dream said at the end of Doll's House to uh, Desire. Right, Glenn? Right. And I think that this is something of a through line here is mythologies and gods, right? Every story in this collection features this. We do have these actual Greek and Egyptian deities running around this speculative world, which I think is something that we take for granted because it's such a huge part of Gaiman's work. I mean, you know, thinking of American gods as maybe kind of a central place there, but it's all over Gaiman's work. But this is actually a pretty big move here in this volume. It, it is true, you know. You mentioned Brent the the Hecate that we, you know, we've already had the we've had Hecate. We've and then had the mythological names for the the three women, which we've gotten in uh, Greek and and Norse, both Greek and Norse. But it just really wasn't clear that those things uh, meant that Zeus and like Osiris also exist, or you know. To, to think specifically about who we get actually in dream country, Calliope and Orpheus and Ra. Here we learn no, that they do all really exist. That is a huge revelation. That is a huge expansion of this speculative world here. And it is not going away, right? Because Gaiman has made this a really big deal. It's not just background so that he can tell one or two interesting short stories before he carries on with the story about Dream and what he's getting up to in the late 20th century, because he's also had Dream actually reproduce with one of these Greek goddesses, with Calliope. So that's Interesting in itself that we learned that the endless can biologically reproduce and also with people who are not actually endless. That in itself maybe is inherently interesting, but it is clear at this point too that Gaiman is going to be intertwining Dream with this mythological world. It's going to come back. And in addition, then, in the, the story we haven't talked about yet, or I haven't mentioned yet, um, Midsummer Night's Dream, um, Dream is interacting with uh, Titania and the members of the fairy court. And here we have him interfacing with creatures that we more associate with folklore versus mythology, if, you know, would we make that kind of distinction, which maybe we shouldn't. But we also get the idea that here Dream feels he wants to give something to not just to Tanya and Oberon, but to all of the fairy folk for the time and and what they've given to this particular plane of the earth before they are less likely to make appearances in the future in it. Um, and so we get Dream's character here where, and this is pre-imprisonment, he feels some kind of um, – I'm not sure I want to use the word duty or obligation because that's very specific things that Dream feels duties or obligations to. But he feels there's some – reason why he maybe should feel obliged to give this gift in a way that um, we don't see him at that point chronologically in Dream's development. We don't think that he would care that much about mortals. And in fact, obviously in that story, he doesn't seem to care much about him because he is fine to make the deal with William Shakespeare and he doesn't seem to pay any attention or mind to what might be going on um, to Shakespeare's son um, and 
Queen Titania's interest in him. Um, in fact, in that way, Shakespeare kind of is similar to Dream in terms of his unawareness of what is going on or lack of care about um, his own child versus what's going on with the story itself and, and the art of telling it. Right. It's it, one of the cool things that we learn about Dream in this volume is that he has this special relationship with the the fairies. And I, 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 I am really thinking that this has to have something to do with the fact that they don't seem to dream and they don't seem to really have stories in their lives, which kind of sets them outside of his purview and means that he doesn't interact with them in his official capacity. And so these are the only people that he can interact with purely because he wants to, purely because he wants to be friends with them. And I, I think that's what, what Gaiman is trying to show us. They're doing a very subtle uh, job and, and great job of it. But yeah, the, the, the fairies too are this real big deal here in the expansion of this universe. I mean, and I do think, you know, we, we do like, for some reason, we do make a distinction between folklore and mythology, but I think that your your impulse to say maybe we shouldn't, uh, I think that that's right. Uh, they, 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 are, they are stories. Um, why we think that uh, medieval stories are not myths, but ancient stories are, is a bit arbitrary. I mean, it's not a bit arbitrary. It's totally arbitrary, right? But what we learn is that medieval fairy stories are real, or at least they are about real people. I mean, some of the stories themselves, I guess, are pretty clearly made up, but they're about real people who aren't human, but also aren't the endless. Also, they're distinct from, they're different from these, you know, uh, gods, the, the mythological figures the um, that we've met. And, you know, going back to thinking about the gods too, I mean, they're one of the things that does seem to set them apart from the fairies is that the fairies are maybe just humanoid aliens in the same way that Martian Manhunter is. But the gods are not. They're not just humanoid aliens. They are something else entirely with a real like complex, real metaphysical uh, relationship with us and and with fairies too. I guess we know that the fairies have some dealing with Orpheus, right? And that they've, you know, uh, Theseus as well, right? We know this from A Midsummer Night's Dream. And so there are these different types of sentient creatures that Gaiman is building up here as well. So it is just a real serious business expansion of what this speculative world is and who's in it and and what the rules are for these different types of people. So going back to your original question, Glenn, the dream doesn't really have an arc that we kind of see here, but we do learn a lot about him, even I think in the issue he is not in. And in fact, in, in some ways, we may even learn more about him in that one. No, no, we don't. I was going to say we may l l learn more about him in that issue than the other ones, but that would be a lie. Because <laughs> we definitely learn more about him uh, when we hear about his relationships and reference to his son. Um, and we definitely learn more about him also when we see him in Cat Guys, which um, going back to that, actually, and I hadn't mentioned that the idea that Dream um, is the Lord of Dreams for all beings. And so he appears as a cat to a cat. We've seen this before where Dream appears as a different looking human to other humans to pace based on kind of their cultural reference point. He'll always appear to be what, you know, would be culturally appropriate for you to view as an endless who is associated with you um, and your people. Um, but here we have that extending to, to, to felines as well, where he um, appears as a cat and communicates with a cat and kind of very much is in a place that a cat would want to be versus, you know, in a palatial human room. 
Well, we also learn in A Dream of a Thousand Cats that cats have their own mythological system or their own cosmological belief system, and that that is true in the same way that the the Greek mythology and the Egyptian mythology and the medieval fairy stories are true. And I mean, I think, you know, right, all of these stories being true, even if they contradict each other, right? This is a huge feature of this speculative world that he's really laying out in the open here in dream country in this this massive expansion of, of what the world is, right? Because these stories do all contradict each other. They can't all be true. You know, this business with uh, Ra is, you know, one of the sun gods, right? There are lots of them, for example, right? I mean, this is just a very cool, very expansive uh, move here. You know, Neil Gaiman was steeped in hearing about stories from mythology when he was a child, as I think a lot or most of us are. And so seeing characters that you have heard about or have read about or even ones that you don't, but you presuppose might exist, it's it's fun to see all that pulled in. And I think also in pulling in mythology from like ancient civilizations that tends to be the way a lot of kind of entry point for a lot of us learning also about ancient history right because we learn about the people and what they believe in and then we learn about you know the importance of the mediterranean when we think about poseidon right so we think about that when we think about hellenistic society um and so it's it's kind of it's a fun way to bring in a whole bunch of um baggage that the reader brings with them um to pull in all this mythology um, is that you then start making these connections to, you know, um, the canon of not just the DC superhero universe, but the canon of the universe that we ourselves live in and where we've looked at the pyramids and, you know, read about raw or, you know, thought about the fact that there are muses and maybe don't know their names, but we've, you know, connected some things here or there and we're 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 familiar with the expressions associated with like finding your muse and so on and so forth so actually having those as characters just kind of helps better evoke and personify these ideas for us as the audience but also again he's he's able to somewhat cheat and pull our heartstrings more easily by um, connecting it with things that are already likely in our kind of subconscious. The one other thing we were talking about mythologies and gods, Glenn, um, as kind of a theme and motif here. And so jumping ahead into that, um, I did want to mention that, uh, Leslie Klinger and his annotated Sandman has a bit from Neil Gaiman's script for, um, the facade story in which he explains kind of the role of mythology through this series. So I'm going to go ahead and, and read that here. Neil Gaiman writes, basically, we've been looking at the role of mythology in life. So in 17, we looked at the mythology of artistic creations. In 18, we looked at cats and the role of religion. In 19, we looked at the flip side of 17. Insofar as we looked at the myths of artistic creation and the cost of the artistic role. I bet all of you thought that we were just telling stories, huh? Here with 20, so uh, we're up to facade. Uh, we're also looking at mythology, but here it's personal mythology. The f- key figures of the last three Sandman, the last three Sandmans have been creators, Rick Maddock, the Siamese, and Shakespeare, or affected by creators, Calliope, the Kitten, or Hamnet. With this story, we're looking at a loser and the mythology of death. So I think that there's also some kind of 
the idea of creation, which I think we'll turn to in a minute, but um, the idea that all of these stories are about kind of the role that mythology plays, whether it's the very personal mythology of Ferrini, in which she was literally molded by a god to be an agent on Earth and then feels trapped because of that, versus, you know, Richard Maddock, who abuses a mythological creature um, and sexually assaults it for his own purposes, um, just as Erasmus Fry had done previously. Um, or it's the kind of mythology of hope that the Siamese gives to um, the baby kitten. Um, or if it's kind of taking bits of mythology to tell grand stories that will far outlive you and unfortunately have a much um, uh, fuller life themselves than your own son would have in the terms of um, William Shakespeare and um, Midsummer Night's Dream. This emphasis that Gaiman is placing here on you know mythology, the role of it in in each of these four issues. I mean, this is really the through line here of Dream Country, right? Is stories and storytelling that we've got, you know, that that there are really probably about a dozen different things that he's doing that we get different aspects of. I don't want to do all dozen of them, but maybe a few that we should point out are, you know, that he's he is really that one of the things he's chiefly interested in here as a young writer, you know, new in his career, though, doing awesomely at it, right? Getting accolades at this point is thinking about what is the price for literary greatness, which we get right up front in Calliope, where, hey, if you want to be a great writer, you've got to kidnap someone and you have to rape that person that, you know, you have to become a monster in order to achieve literary greatness. And then we get something similar to that really in A Midsummer Night's Dream where Shakespeare is the writer, uh, the middling writer who has decided he wants to be a great writer and has to make another uh, type of, of deal with this where he has to become distant from his family. He has to lose his son. He doesn't maybe know up front that that's going to be the price, but he has to become emotionally distant from his family and and maybe the losing of his son is the consequence of becoming emotionally distant from his family that he's not paying attention to Hamnet because his story is being performed right so he's not paying attention to his son and he loses his son and that's the price that he's paying for greatness he has to become kind of a a shadow of what it means to really be a person because he's just he's now primarily a conduit for these stories because he is a conduit for literary greatness. And I, I I don't think that it's, you know, an extension or too much of a stretch to imagine that the young Neil Gaiman starting out in his career, achieving some bit of success at this point is thinking about that. And I don't know anything about his biography, what his, you know, family relationships were like at this point, but you could see where these might be things that are on his mind as he's balancing his career and other aspects of his life. Yeah. And it, it's a lot about the power that stories have. And as an author, you, you want to think of them as powerful things, but then also you may feel trapped by it. And Imprisonment is something that um, High Bender in the Sandman Companion actually mentions is one of the through lines he sees for these four stories. Because in Calliope, obviously, you have Calliope who is imprisoned um, by uh, Erasmus Fry and then by uh, Richard Maddock. But also, in some ways, Richard Maddock is imprisoned by his need to create, and then that causes him to 
do such terrible things. And I mean, not to excuse him because he actively decide to do these terrible things in service to his wanting to create these great works of art and get mainly the fame and acclaim with it more so than I think even being caring about the, the how well the art lasts. Um, but on the flip side of that, Shakespeare isn't necessarily interested in the fame, apparently, as it is the creation of the great art itself. You know, him telling his players um, at times, like, you know, don't do the thing that's the easy laugh. Go for the thing that will um, that will play out, you know, better and will better withstand the kind of test of time and not just the cheap sit on a pile kind of joke. And then the cats obviously are imprisoned by people and the Siamese's tale of woe of having her kittens taken from her and thrown in the river is an extremely, you know, tragic tale to tell. Um, but again, cats are imprisoned by people and then the hope of maybe we can imprison humans, you know, there, there, can, there can't be a universe where cats and humans are living peacefully coexisting. It's one's going to be dominant versus the other. And then with, uh, with Raimi, um, we have her imprisoned in her own body. Um, you know, the irony being that her body is able to transform into anything. And so she's imprisoned, but very much like no prison could actually, actually contain her except for herself. So she's kind of down to the last prison that ultimately we're all kind of stuck in is, you know, the actual body you inherit, you, you, you inhabit is the imprisonment that we all kind of have. So thinking about the role of imprisonment here um, and how that ties to all of these issues is interesting. Um, so again, um, thanks to Highbender for pointing out the imprisonment through line on that. Well, I like this contrast that you're drawing between Richard Madoc and William Shakespeare, who who both are giving up something of themselves or are transforming into something they might not actually want to be in order to achieve literary greatness. But you're right that Madoc doesn't really actually seem to care about the art. He's He wants fame. He wants glory. He wants money. I mean, in particular, his immediate motivation is that he's taken an advance on a book he's not written and, and he's going to have to give it back and doesn't have it to give back, right? So he's he's in debt. That's the thing that 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 is his immediate motivation. But he doesn't seem to care that much about the art at all. But, but Shakespeare does. And obviously, Madoc is a villain. He is a monster. He is not a sympathetic character. He's just a villain. But Shakespeare is a sympathetic character. Here, right? We we want him to have this literary greatness, and we're sad that there's this price for it. But we don't think of him as being a monster because he doesn't fully understand what the price is going to be, and the price itself is not inherently monstrous. Though you know what happens to Hamnet is not great. Um, the one suspects that if Shakespeare had known up front that that's what you're going to pay for this, he might have made a different decision, right? So he's sympathetic in that way. And I think that this also, this contrast between these two types of artists is one of the things that Gaiman is doing here in in Dream Country, this idea of looking at uh, high art versus low art, I guess. And, and, and maybe you know, we might characterize this as well as Gaiman versus genre snobs, but also thinking about writers who care about the art versus writers who sell out, I guess, right? And we get this in, you know, mostly in Calliope and, and A Midsummer Night's Dream, but Calliope, we've got this this bit about the, the Booker Prize and how, you know, I can't believe that's going to someone who's written some genre fiction, for example. And then 
I think a big point of A Midsummer Night's Dream, the way that Gaiman is adapting this, the way he's bringing this into the Sandman and the things he's emphasizing in that Shakespeare play is that he's saying, hey, Shakespeare people, hey, literary snobs, you know that this is a fantasy story, right? <laughs> right? You know that one of the three pillars of the canon is a fantasy story. And actually, you know that Greek mythology is also fantasy stories. And that's the other, that's well, it's, that's the second of the three pillars of the Western literary canon. Uh, maybe you shouldn't be knocking genre literature. Maybe genre writers should be getting the Booker Prize and other prizes and being regarded as literature. This is something we talked a lot about when we did Forbidden Brides as well. This is also clearly something that is on Gaiman's mind in the 1990s. And not only Gaiman, right? That this is, you know, lots of writers who are really talented, excellent writers who are writing literature, uh, exploring great and compelling themes with beautiful prose and awesome stories, but are being just ignored by literary critics and by academia because they're writing stories about, you know, dragons and wizards and spaceships and so on. And I think that's something Gaiman has in mind here as well. I think I think it is, Glenn. I think you're right. The the tale of Richard Maddock and and his desire for fame um maybe is the the thing that is that's the somewhat what is the ickier thing. It's not that he is, you know, doing genre fiction and that that's a negative thing. And, and I think that's somewhat of what Neil is kind of poking fun at is that genre snobs would focus on that versus the idea that he is, you know, um, in this case, not literally, although, you know, he is literally raping a muse, but he, if he, if we take that to just a kind of more, abstract idea that he is raping a muse he's he's just trying to wring what he can to get monetary fame and make like large hollywood blockbusters that are you know kind of just the equivalent of cotton candy right um i think is what we're supposed to take from it at least it's what i take from it is that you know while there are large i'm not one of those people who will say like if a hollywood produces it and has a lot of money it must not actually have value because i think that that's not necessarily correct but um although i know people who feel that way but i think though there's difference between like the cotton candy films of just like this is just unbelievably stupid and i'm paying money for it and it's just it's basically i'm using I'm viewing those kind of films the way you might view just like a sedative where it's just like, this is just something to distract you for a couple hours and make you not think, feel some pain versus actually being, you know, art in the terms of high art or, you know, something that causes you to reevaluate or better appreciate yourself or your universe or other people's in universe in it, or, you know, even just, interacting with stories of characters that um, kind of you find more intellectually stimulating, let's say, independent of whether it's genre or not. And so the idea that Richard Maddock, you know, just, I mean, he literally will just rape things to squeeze out fame and money without thinking about quality versus, um, as you said, with Shakespeare being concerned with the quality. And, and, you know, I think we see this very much. And, um, when the next day, um, they wake up and it turns out that the gold that Oberon paid was just leaves in the morning and Shakespeare doesn't care. Right. The manager of the company is a little put off by this because he was expecting people to get paid because you have to pay artists so that they can eat and have somewhere to sleep and stuff, which is true. Um, and you should 
pay for things when you, um, particularly when you have the ability to do so. Um, but you, uh, remember our Patreon, um, but, <laughs> but Shakespeare doesn't, he's not phased by this at all. He doesn't think of it. And there's no, and there's also no reference to like anyone's, you know, stomach, you know, feeling empty and everyone, you know, awoke well rested. And so it was, you know, there was nourishment in some ways, particularly for Shakespeare that came from producing the art itself. Um, and I think that that's kind of in nice contrast to Richard Maddock. And so maybe that's the terrible thing that Richard Maddock does. You know, they're both maybe playing in genre, but only one of them is the villain. And it's not because he's playing in genre. It's because he's catering to a broad, expansive audience and getting these acclaims, but being a terrible person while doing it. Right. Um, and I don't think that, you know, explicitly Neil Gaiman was taking a shot at, you know, anyone who had won famous prizes for being terrible people. Um, but here in this fictional story, we're set up with that very story where we've got someone who's, um, you know, they are working a little bit in genre, we're told um, in that clip of the story, but his goal is not, you know, he doesn't care about it. He just wants to wring money from it. And we've used the word villain. We've used the word monster. We have used the word rape more times than I, I really care to use in my life here in, in talking about these stories so far. So maybe we should we should move into the, the next thing we've got on the outline here and uh, point out that uh, these four stories are dark. Yeah, these these stories are very dark um and they're they're really tragic um and we see terrible things happening to people um who we I mean Sandman barely appears in these stories and when he does he doesn't appear on the first page of any of them, right? So these are characters who we have never met before and you know kind of the strength of Neil Gaiman's writing mixed with our ability to, to have, you know, empathy, um, means that we fairly quickly find ourselves on a side that is righteous in terms of like how terrible, you know, Calliope is treated, how terrible cats, particularly, you know, the, the kittens of the Siamese and the Siamese were, were treated, um, how, and even just in the end where how terrible, uh, Rainey feels kind of imprisoned herself, um, in her own body, um, and, you know, contemplating suicide many, many times and just not knowing how to make that work. Um, and then the tragedy that appears a little bit more in the background in terms of Hamnet, we get in Midsummer Night's Dream. So we've kind of got tragedy throughout all of these things. So in some ways, it's it's Dream Country is an interesting collection because um, we it almost fits very well with the horror anthology comics, um, although it's playing with a lot more kind of fantasy tropes than horror tropes. If you can make that slice. Um, uh, that, you know, Neil Gaiman originally was borrowing from to have his characters like, you know, Cain and Abel with the house of mystery and the house of secrets. Um, and Lucy and himself originally had a bit as an anthology, you know, curator, um, like Cain and Abel and the crypt keeper, um, for television. Um, and so we have him kind of returning to this idea of here's a collection of anthology of stories that are all kind of dark and they're all kind of also kind of wish fulfillment type stuff, right? Like Richard Maddock ha wants something, here's what he gets, and it has terrible effects for particularly Calliope. And then ultimately 
terrible things for him result as well, although maybe well due for him to experience that. Um, but, uh, for the cats, um, the wish fulfillment is not granted, but, um, kind of what leads to them wanting to have the wish fulfillment is kind of a tragedy all along the way. Um, Shakespeare's wish fulfillment directly leads to the tragedy of what happens to Hamnet. Um, and with, uh, with Raimi, she thought she wanted the powers and did choose to go into the pyramid. So she got her wish fulfillment too, and then is imprisoned. So um, kind of everybody not everybody. Many people are kind of getting what they want, except for the cats. Um, but even what the cats want would be tragic for the humans if, like, the world were flipped again. Um, and that kind of rings through, which um, it's interesting, though, because there's so much. I mean, it varies a little bit on the issue. But I'm, when I think about Midsummer Night's Dream and I think about how bright some of the colors are in terms of the palette that's used – that's not something that screams tragedy, um, in the way that I guess Calliope does. And in, in the, the art we were talking about last, um, episode with that Colleen Dorn does on, um, facade where like the art does more say like tragedy or maybe, you know, kind of horror genre. Yeah. Well, if there's one thing I've learned from this volume, it's don't have any wishes. <laughs> don't have any desires. If you, if you want things, bad things are going to happen. I guess I learned that by being a Cubs fan too. But you know, it's helpful to have these uh, these reminders here. But yeah, I kind of want to recharacterize the the wishing in facade because I you know I think you, you know you're right that that she has maybe this wish for the superpowers. But to me, that felt more like she was just doing her duty. I, I guess I thought that the wish that Rainey has there, the thing that she's yearning for is afterwards, it's to be normal again. And so actually what we have is uh, she and the the, the Siamese uh, from A Dream of a Thousand Cats are kind of parallel there in that their wish, the wish that they have is in response to the suffering that they've had to in, endure that they they both feel powerless and that what they want what they're yearning for is to have some kind of power to overturn the the power structure in order to have uh, control over their own lives in some way and then we see the two writers having you know their their parallel in that way which is maybe an interesting way of thinking about the the structure of the the volume which uh, uh, which we will we will get to. No, and I, I think that's actually a good point. I think that's fair because the wish that Rainey has to have the superpowers. When she's doing the job, that is actually just told to us in kind of flashback. That's the backstory. So you're right. In the issue itself, her wish is the wish of release um, from uh, life, um, from her life as it is then. And I briefly want to mention, because you, you used a – and maybe I used it first, but I think you used it first. Um, you used the word desire, and it occurs to me that – so we do get – dream um pop up in three out of four issues and we get death in the issue he's not in we don't see any of the other endless actually make an appearance but now that you mention it in some ways we maybe we do because maybe we get the other ones or at least we get desire and despair kind of appearing in all of the issues even though the characters don't grace the panels <laughs> That's a really great observation, and I think in particular for facade, right? Why is 
you know, I mean, I love I love Facade. I think it's a great story. So I don't want to actually change anything about it. But it is interesting that it's it's Death who uh, visits because she is just actually in the neighborhood, and that we don't see despair, even though this is clearly a story about despair. But I do think it's an interesting idea too to think about where is the line between dreams purview and desires here. And I, I do think that you know, as we've seen in in Doll's House, that the desires domain seems to be about hedonism. It's it's lust, which can be sexual lust. It can be uh, other things. I suppose it can be greed as well, which we do certainly see Richard Madoc having. But I think that, you know, given that the the thing that he wants to do in order to attain his desire is dream's purview. I, I guess that's where dream gets precedence. And I guess we also do know, we learn in A Doll's House that uh, um, destiny and dream and death are senior to despair and desire and and any other endless we might encounter in the future. And so maybe maybe if there is an overlap, right, they get first dibs. Yeah, it, it could be. Um, and it's weird. It's, it's hard to interpret because we do see your desire, you're right, in terms of kind of lust and more, you know, we might consider kind of base instincts. But the way her domain is depicted – because it's in some ways just a heart with a minor bit of stuff around it. It's almost like desire's domain is whatever is in creatures' hearts um, for good or ill. Um, and oftentimes the way desire twists things, because desire is kind of a twisted individual, um, is towards a negative. Um, and because it's, it's the heart kind of exposed, right? Um but I, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure. Right. Well, we can even bring this back to a hope in hell, right? Where, you know, dreams kind of a mic drop moment of uh, the only reason that hell works is because people here dream of heaven. But, you know, you could also say the only reason hell works is because people want to be someplace else. They desire to be somewhere else. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Uh, or, right. Or they, I mean, this is where this they breaks experience down. <laughs> the despair that despair, you know, because let's give credit to despair. <laughs> she is despair is is, is pretty great um in some ways which is a weird thing to say <laughs> well brad i think you've just created a little game that we can play as we continue through the sandman which is to see how many of the non-dream endless because our thing is always favorite character who isn't dream how many of the other endless actually ever make it to be our favorite character in a in a volume or not i'll i mean i don't know this point it's it's been zero right it's over two so far or over four because neither of us have picked one but uh i don't know maybe that will change maybe uh maybe that will change this time but uh, uh, that'll be a fun game we'll make that into some kind of drinking game well we should turn our attention out of looking at this as a volume not just the four issues but the whole package here in this uh in the book that we've got and i actually want to start by talking about the introduction this introduction is by steve erickson he's uh, an american novelist he's he's probably now best known for his book, uh, The Sea Came In at Midnight. But at the time, in the early 90s, he would have been known for uh, Tours of the Black Clock, which received a ton of great press in, uh, in 1989 and then maybe especially in 1990. Erickson doesn't really say all that much in this introduction. In, in fact, I have to say that I, I've been really disappointed in the introductions, uh, at least the ones that have not been written by Gaiman, which, you know, is two of the three here, because they don't 
say anything of substance about the text. And that's really what I want. I want the person writing the introduction to offer up a strong reading or two about the story or stories in the book, something that you and I can then react to and say, you know, Erickson or Barker claims X. Do you think that's true? But we're not getting that sort of thing. And really, that's because these introductions aren't criticism. They're not scholarship. They're marketing. And and we saw that last time with Clive Barker, where it really wasn't clear to me that he'd even read the material that he was introducing. And now we have that with Erickson, though Erickson clearly has read these stories. But his goal is to get us to buy the book. It's not to get us to think critically about the stories here 30 years later, even though that's the thing that I want people writing introductions to, to do. And Clive Barker, right? We talked about this. Clive Barker was an interesting choice because he was a horror writer and a schlocky, popular kind of horror writer. And so Sandman was clearly being marketed at that audience with uh, The Doll's House. But Erickson is not a genre writer at all. He writes literary fiction. He is actually kind of an Erasmus Fry or a, a Richard Maydock. And I don't mean to you know, throw aspersions on Erickson's character, but right, just thinking of the types of stories that he, he writes, the types of books that he writes. And the fact that DC got him, or maybe it's Gaiman who got him, to write the introduction, telling bookshop browsers that they should buy this book, that's interesting, right? Because it tells us who Sandman is being marketed to for from this volume. And it's a very different audience than Clive Barker is speaking to, right? Yeah, I think it uh, does show that they're getting a better sense as to what the audience is, particularly if you want to try to branch out. Yeah, I mean, I think that this introduction, you know, what I'm envisioning here, that the sort of thought process that goes into it is that there's a good chance that, uh, you know, in 1993, people are going to walk into a Barnes & Noble or a, a Borders, <laughs> it's 1993, <laughs> and this is actually going to be facing them when they come in on, maybe not, I don't know that it was ever on any kind of bestseller list, it may have been, but but as a staff recommendation, Maybe. And it's going to be something that people have heard about. Oh, I heard that there's like comic books that might actually be like real literature or something. And this is it. And it's staring at you. And you might pick it up, even though, you know, that's not what you've, you've, you know, come in to, to get. You've come in to get, I don't know, David Foster Wallace or something. Uh, but you see this, you pick it up and you read this introduction by Steve Erickson. And maybe you've come in to buy Steve Erickson books, actually, who's saying, no, 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 you should check this out. This is actually literature, right? It's, it is, in fact, literally the same thing that I was talking about, <laughs> you know, as being one of the things that appears in these stories and in Forbidden Brides is this question of can genre literature be great literature, right? Or genre fiction also count as literary fiction? And it seems that DC Comics is, you know, trying to say yes and you should you should buy this that they are trying to branch out beyond the audience of of genre readers here you know we've talked about this before um because we're working from slightly different versions that we have and you and i have multiple versions of these stories in different collections um and for the 30th anniversary, when they did the reprints, they added additional intros or in some cases replaced them with, with people who are more notable comics authors. So here we have someone uh, that I'll get to in a minute who isn't trying to say, hey, this is real literature. Let me bring in people from outside comics. It's instead the name of someone who, if you're familiar with comics or in this case, also animated 
television series, then you'll recognize the name. And if you're not already within the club, you won't, and it won't mean anything to you. But then there's a little bit more freedom for him to just do the, you know, oh shucks, isn't Neil Gaiman great, um, which he does do, but then follow that with a little bit of actual analysis in terms of Dream's role in these stories, which I actually think I'm going to, uh, I'll share it. I'm going to read a little bit because a lot of people won't have access to this intro unless you have this particular version of this. In this case, uh, Paul Dini, um, writing in August uh, 2018, wrote an introduction um, that in this particular version comes before the foreword um, that is written by Steve Erickson. Um, and Paul Dini, you know, talks about how as a child, you know, where do you go when you when you sleep? And then he talks about how you know his awareness of what do you what's the name for what happens when you sleep and where you go. And he's like, no, this is dream country. Now I have a name for it, thanks to what Neil Gaiman gave us. Um, but then, as I said, he kind of then actually gives us a little bit of analysis in terms of where dream is with these creatures. So he says, quote, Morpheus, the titular Sandman, is rightfully prominent in the stories, though his shape varies from tale to tale as befits a being whose very nature is dreams. In Calliope, he is at his most familiar, the king of the dreaming, dark, dour, equal parts compassionate and vengeful, dispensing poetic justice on a greedy author for imprisoning and defiling a muse. Morpheus curses the writer with a violent torrent of ideas that the punished man can neither contain nor control. It's a nightmare familiar to every writer, a head swirling with great ideas, but without the focus to weave them together. Ask any author on the eve of a deadline and they will confirm this. The Sandman takes on a feline identity in A Dream of a Thousand Cats, proving that Morpheus is present in the dreams of all living creatures, even those of a slumbering kitten. For his newest play, A Midsummer Night's Dream, William Shakespeare finds an unlikely patron in the form of an Elizabethan-era king of dreams and an even stranger audience just arrived from fairy to attend his opening night. In Facade, Morpheus's sister, Death, takes the lead role, facilitating a dream of sorts for a one-time superheroine seeking permanent release from her lonely existence and invulnerable body. Uh, so that's Paul Dini, and most people, if you're only somewhat familiar with comics, will recognize Paul Dini from his work uh, doing a lot of um, the show running and writing for Batman the Animated Series um, that was out in the 90s. Uh, then from that, he went into comics. Um, one of his notable creations is that of creating uh, Harley Quinn, the character in the, who first appeared in Batman the Animated Series before she then later appeared in comics. So there we have an intro where, the, again, the purpose is to talk about kind of just like, isn't this great? I'm a fan. Also, I'm a recognizable name if you're into DC Comics. Yeah, and that's a much better introduction. And something that jumped out to me there, Brent, is that uh, uh, he credits Gaiman for coming up with the, the the label Dream Country, which is, of course, you know, that's the the title of the the, the volume. I actually wasn't sure if Gaiman had come up with that, though I, I couldn't find any kind of al alternative there. But it you know, sounds like something that Shakespeare might have said in some play, though I, it it is not, as far as I as far as I can tell. Yeah, I'm not sure where it comes from and with any the problem with any kind of two word combination is um it, it's hard to figure out like somebody probably said that sometime before but um but i think 
um, transitioning a little bit to talk about the title of the volume, the idea of a dream country is really fascinating because a country, you know, we define as a set bit of geography, right? Um, you know, as a student in political science, there's a difference between a country and a state, um, and, and a culture and a people and but a country is is the thing that you can point to on a map and I can say, I mean, maybe it's contested with what the neighboring country says, but I can say, you know, the Rio Grande makes up this part of the border, right? Um, versus the idea of dream where particularly as we've seen in the comic, um, when dream first returns to the dreaming, uh, in preludes and nocturnes, it's a kind of ever shifting kind of amorphous thing where things are, there are static things, you know, we do have Fiddler's green that when he's there is a specific space. Right. Um, but otherwise it's kind of an ever shifting area. And so while we can see Lucian walk through and count steps, we get the sense that everything around those steps is always moving and, and, and changing based on the dreams that we all are contributing to it when we fall asleep. Um, either because, and a creature in the dreaming is helping affect those things. The Corinthian might be featured in one of our nightmares or because of whatever is causing our own brains to spark and add things to it, whether it be a locomotive or, you know, us having dinner with Frank Sinatra and Marilyn Monroe, right? Yeah, I I like this idea of of country. I mean, I think you know if we if we're we're trying to interrogate what does the word country mean here? I mean, it definitely does not mean uh, the the territory of an independent state, right? It does it does not mean that? But it also doesn't mean you know rural area. It doesn't mean countryside, right? So we replace it with something else. I mean, I think we're just talking about you know region or area or something something like that. I mean the etymology of the word is actually really interesting which you know etymology of words something I never get tired of uh, of doing. It actually just comes from the Latin word contra which you know we still use in uh, in our language you know to mean against or opposite and and what it means is it's the 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 region of land the area of land that's up against the the city. So you mean the area around you know, Rome or the area around Paris or Chicago or something, uh, something like that. But, you know, it's, it's region, right? That's what we mean here. But yeah, I think, you know, using country rather than like dream region or dream area, or even just calling it the dreaming, for example, though it, it makes it more familiar, right? It, it sounds, makes it sound like it's something that we can actually go visit, something that's adjacent to us, that's accessible to us in some way. And of course it is, right? But, you know, we can't find it anywhere on a map, but this makes it feel like we could. And I think it does emphasize the proximity and the importance of dreams to us to use the word country rather than some other word. Yeah, I think that's right, Glenn. And I think that's partially what Paul Dini is getting after in his intro, the idea that it's a place you visit and it's a place that you might even visit nightly, whether you remember it or not. Um, but I also think in terms of country, you know, we've talked about this before, the idea of Morpheus is the king of the the dream country, the king of the dreaming. So he's the sovereign of this territory. And so it is a place you visit, but it's also a place where there is a clear individual who sits atop it. Well, and you know, that's the name of the show hanging out with the dream king, right? It's not hanging out in the dream country though. I suppose we could have, suppose we could have done that too. And, and uh, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe that'll be the spinoff show. I don't know what that'll be, but uh, uh, we should talk about the cover of this volume as well. Brent, what do you, uh, what do you make of this? What's going on here? So um, 
as we've talked about before, one of the problems with this also is that we have different covers depending on what we look at. <laughs> right. So, uh, which cover are you looking at, <laughs> Glenn? <laughs> Well, I've got all three of these up, but I, I guess I had in front of me and I, you know, I should, I should not have just said, what do you make of the cover? But the physical volume that I have in front of me right now is uh, the uh, 1993 trade paperback, uh, which is is different from the hardcover edition that, that you've got. And, and this is interesting in that, you know, it also features a tree and there's a bit of a, you know, some green space behind it. It's kind of a, a, a night sky, maybe uh, beneath a full moon. We don't see the moon, but the light suggests that there's some kind of... Uh, uh, or the shade of blue suggests that there's some kind of light source, but there is a face. That's really what's dominating mm-hmm. here, a face with some hands touching it. But the face appears to be itself made of wood. Uh, the eye is closed. We only see one eye anyway, the eye is closed, but a face appears to be made of wood. And then draped over the the face is uh, Dream Country and then a list of the stories uh, that we get, uh, numbered one through four. I quite like this cover, though I think the cover that I like the best is the, the 30th anniversary cover where you do get an image that corresponds to at least one of the the stories in here. So each of the four stories are represented graphically on the on the cover. And then also I think that the the forest itself, although that maybe also serves to uh, you know emphasize the Midsummer Night's Dream, which it does take place in a forest, or at least you know the play takes place in a forest anyway. To me, that suggests the dream country itself, right? Is this this forest? And looking at the the cover on the original trade paperback version that you mentioned before. Um, I do really like this cover, and this one's uh, Dave McKeon. Yeah, it's certainly a beautiful work of art. I mean, I, I do think that the 30th anniversary one is maybe a better does a better job as being a cover of telling you what's in the book. But if I had to pick one that was going to hang on my wall, this is the one. The Dave McKean one is uh, what what I would want for sure. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that the the Dave McKean one is less representative of what the stories are about that we're about to read. While the 30th anniversary, I think does the best idea of kind of once you've read the stories evoking, Oh yeah, that's what's in this volume. Well, as with the, uh, the previous two volumes, this one does also have an, an epigraph and we should talk about that as well, though. I'm, I'm not as jazzed about this as I was jazzed about the, uh, the ones in Preludes and Nocturnes and the Doll's House. But the, there's a, a real world epigraph and then there's a, a, an epigraph that comes from one of the stories. That's, that's been the formula so far. So the, the real world epigraph is an excerpt from a letter written by the British weird fiction writer Arthur Mackin. Uh, it's written to the American fantasy writer James. Branch Cable. Uh, this is February of 1918, so it's the the last year of the the First World War. It's during uh, Dream's imprisonment, and uh, we've dealt with both of these writers elsewhere on the network. I should say Arthur Mackin is uh, in our stable of writers on Elder Sign, our, our weird fiction podcast. In fact, Brandon and I just did an Arthur Mackin story a few days ago, uh, and Cable's fantasy world uh, makes an appearance in the Gene Wolfe novel, The Fifth Head of Cerberus, which we've we've done already on the the Gene Wolfe literary podcast. So if people are interested in hearing more about those guys, but uh, let's just read what, uh, what this, uh, this excerpt from this Arthur Mackin letter is. I do not know whether you know all that is to be known concerning small mirrors, but of this silence, it's kind of a, a confusing statement, but Mackin is actually referring to something in one of Cable's books and, and then saying that he'll let the matter drop. But I don't know that any of that actually matters because I think that what Gaiman is interested in here is just the, the bit where one writer is telling another writer that he doesn't know what he's talking about. And that is because <laughs> as we get in the second epigraph, the, the one that comes from, from this book that is Gaiman writing something, 
writers are liars. And right? this is uh, something that Erasmus Fry says in, in Calliope. Um, maybe we've done this a little bit backwards, I guess. But Brent, what I get from this pairing is that Gaiman wants us to know up front that all of these stories are about writers and about writing or, or about stories and, and storytellers and that we should be on the lookout for that. And, uh, you know, we have looked out for that and talked about it uh, a lot already. Well, and the writers are liars uh, nicely kind of as a counterpoint to some of, you know, the, even if it's true, even if it didn't happen, doesn't mean it's not true. We, we hear that, you know, that game in this fond of that turn of phrase or variations on it. Um, and so this is kind of the flip side of that where writers are kind of liars. They're telling a story and it's like, but that didn't happen that way, but it's like, it doesn't none of these things need to have happened at all for it not to carry some kind of truth to it. But that doesn't mean that someone isn't lying. Erasmus Fry being, you know, one of the villains, um, of this collection. Um, it's an interesting choice and kind of sharp to have him be kind of the voice of in some ways, truth telling at the top. Um, but kind of in the, 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 the wicked or bad side of it, which I guess kind of plays off against the nature of the fact that all these stories are somewhat tragic and dark um, versus kind of the brighter, you know, dream country where it's all kittens and rainbows. It's like, well, <laughs> those rainbows are used to tie up muses so you can rape them. And the kittens uh, uh, just got thrown in the river. And maybe it's putting those two together, though, the Glenn that kind of says a lot because it's just like, here's two authors talking to each other. And then here's one kind of cutting to the quick of like, both of these people are liars. <laughs> right. We're, we're not to be trusted. We either don't know what we're talking about or we're or we're lying, but it doesn't matter. That's actually what the what the job is. And and, and speaking of writers thinking about writers or thinking about writing, something else that we have in this volume that is super cool is the script for Calliope and and a marked up script for Calliope as as well. This also actually has a, an epigraph here that is uh, from Rudyard Kipling, uh, which we will uh, will return to Rudyard Kipling later in this uh, this episode. It's really great. They decided to include with the first trade of this, and they've kind of carried it forward since that they provided a script. Um, there's a nice little script introduction. So there's a Kipling quote, um, and then there's a, a little bit from Neil in which he explains that. The idea of let's include a script so people can see how scripts are put together. But then he cautions everyone repeatedly that like, this is the way that Neil Gaiman does a script for Sandman in this instance. And that it's not, you know, he takes even a different approach as necessary. And there's a lot of different ways to do a comic script. Um, you know, but that being said, there's, you know, some more common ways to do it. And, and, you know, if you've never before, and I hadn't before, you know, seeing this both, you know, when I was a teenager and saw it, had really thought about how you lay things out on the page. And so this does a nice job of throwing that out. And Neil Gaiman explains in the intro that, you know, he wasn't sure um, when he was young how comics were put together either. And so he got a an example of a script that Alan Moore wrote, um, and then he kind of modeled it, his approach somewhat off of that. Um Alan Moore's scripts, um, there are stories about, you know, him writing sometimes like 10 pages to describe what a door looks like. And then at the end of it saying, uh, <laughs> it's just a door, just draw a door. <laughs> um, why are you still reading this? But it's just the amount of effort that goes into thinking about it. And I, I think that the script does a really nice job of, of showing us that. Um, and the way Neil 
explains that he writes his scripts is he likes to know and he tries to refuse to write scripts, at least for the Sandman, until he knew who the artist would be, who the penciler would be. Because he tries to play to the penciler's uh, strength. Um, and also then he writes things as a letter to that uh, artist. There's a lot of kind of fun bit of kind of wittiness here, even to the point where, you know, at the top, you know, he welcomes Kelly because this is Kelly's first time writing on Sandman and says, you know, um, welcome to, to this to this world. And OK, let's go. They say that a lot in American cop shows. Um, and then he explains that he kind of has to restart in Sandman every like five issues or so. And so this is kind of where he's at. And he's trying to be, tries to explain kind of where this fits. And then he goes panel by panel and gives descriptions of varying kind of extent. But again, he's trying to play to um, Kelly Jones's strengths. Um, and as you mentioned, Glenn, this is annotated. Um, it has comments from Neil as well as Kelly that are recorded in, in different colored ink so that you can kind of see their comments to each other. And it's really just nice to see kind of how Neil went about writing it. And also there are places where things, you know, vary up a little bit. You know, was there anything that particularly you took away from uh, looking at the script in terms of how the, the this issue is produced or just thinking about kind of the creation of comics, the kind of the backdrop for it as a whole? Well, I was certainly really interested in the way that Gaiman does this. I was surprised at the level of direction he gives about the art. It's it's way more than I would have anticipated. I mean, when I've thought about what it would be like to write comics, I have never anticipated doing this level of direction. Though, you know, in his introduction, Gaiman says he does a lot more than most people do. And 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 maybe only for the Sandman, right? That he has done less direction for other comics that he's he's worked on. But that was something that really jumped out to me. But I also I think what I liked most about the script actually are the annotations and seeing the way that as you like to point out, Brent, that this is a, a collaborative creative process, right? That although we're a Neil Gaiman podcast and we're really thinking about the the words on the page, the story that Neil Gaiman is telling, you know, these are collaborative this is collaborative art. This is a team of people working together to create these stories that we're enjoying so much. And so I liked seeing their comments here. The comments that I liked the most were uh, Neil actually kind of elaborate on some of the, the the things that he's doing here, and in particular, the literary allusions that he's making. And so we do have uh, the epigraph to Dream Country is uh, f- some involves the American fantasy writer uh, James Branch Cable, but then. Gaiman actually includes him here in Calliope, and it was something uh, that I missed on the the read through. But one of the one of the books that he has uh, Madoc write is the spirit who had half of everything, and this actually is uh, a reference to James Branch Cable, which I I had never uh, didn't which I didn't realize. This is something I guess that he had intended to write, but also never actually wrote himself. I've only read uh, one uh, James Branch Cable book. We should say he wrote about 20 novels in a kind of loosely related um, series. Uh, Figures of Earth is the big one. It's the only one that I've uh, I've ever read. And I don't actually know anyone in my life. I don't think, Brent, you've read these. I don't know anyone in my life who's read them other than Neil Gaiman and Gene Wolfe, <laughs> who I don't actually know, right? So I was surprised. I mean, these are from the first two decades, first three decades of the 20th century. I mean, and they're not completely out of print. You can get them as print-on-demand books, I, I guess, now, but they're they're out of the public consciousness for sure. So I'm just surprised that that not that Gene Wolfe 
knew them because he was reading a lot in the the, the 40s, late 40s and the early 50s. But the Gaiman knows these books. That was uh, surprising to me. But when I saw that, when I was going through this, I was like, oh gosh, right. He's going to annotate. He's going to tell me where every idea that comes to Rick Maydock at the end when he's flooded with ideas, he's going to have this in here uh, because I've been been wanting to, to know this. But he actually doesn't. The only note that he's got here is on one of them where he says, I may write this story one day. And I'm not actually sure which one it is because the note goes over uh, three of them. Actually, it's maybe slightly more than three of them. But I think it is either, and Brent, I'd, I'd like your opinion on this. It is either a city in which the streets are paved with time or it is a train full of silent women plunging forever through the twilight. Do you think it's the city with streets? paved with time. That's the one I think it is. You know, I was, I had the same question, Glenn, maybe he'll write any of these as a story. One day he just calls it out as this story as if it's, um, you know, just one. Um, and as we talked about, when we talked about the issue, you know, we would love to read anyone's rendition of any of these stories. Um, if anyone <laughs> wants to go ahead and contribute something even to the forum, then, uh, we'd love to see that at, uh, arclaytemplemedia.com. But I think it's the train full of silent women um, plunging forever through the twilight, which sounds like a particularly dark Doctor Who episode. But a city which the states are paid with time sounds like a lot of crazy fun to read uh, as well. So I, I'm not sure. Well, and Gaiman does have a Sandman short story in a, a later volume, I'm not going to spoil anything, that does focus on a city that is a speculative in nature. And it, I don't know, we may, when we get there, find that that is seems like he started to actually write this story and it became that one, right? The story that we actually get on the, the page. But uh, yeah, as we go through, you know, we have not read every single short story that Neil Gaiman has ever, ever written. And so we may actually find that uh, that he has done these. We just don't know about them. And if people do know about them, we'd love to, to, to hear that as well. well we, should, we should move on to, to thinking about the, the stories and their arrangement here the the order in which they are placed i i had some some thoughts about this and 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 i've had some thoughts as we've been talking ab- about it something that struck me when we were talking earlier about the themes and the the, the focus on the, the the characters is that the order of these goes from a character who is an active agent in his story in the, this case it's calliope and and, and maddock is doing it doing bad things right but he's he's actively doing them to a story about a victim to a story about a person doing things about Shakespeare writing and, and producing a play. And then to a story about someone who's a victim of something that it's, that's the order, which actually makes me appreciate the order. Cause I hadn't thought about it that way, because for me, I thought that some of the transitions were a little jarring when I was just reading the volume again to read it, that we go from a story that is about rape and brutalization to a story that's about cats, though it also has darkness in it, but starts out as just being a cute story about cats. That was a jarring transition for me. I think maybe coming from Doll's House, we're a little more equipped, given some of the things that happen in it, to deal with some of the setup for Calliope, though, um, than we were, as I said, I, I think when I first read Dream Country, I read it Having not read Doll's House, I think I had Pared Preludes and Nocturnes before that, but I'm not even sure if I had 100%. I mean, I think it sets a tone right off the top in terms of Calliope, because I, I think that that story is kind of the darkest you get. I don't know. The Midsummer Night's Dream always strikes me as the odd one out in this collection in some ways, because I always feel like there is, in a way, 
the characters, get, there's a freedom that occurs for good or ill at the end of each of the other issues that I'm not sure is there at Midsummer Night's Dream um, in that, you know, Calliope is freed. So we see terrible things happen to her throughout and then she is freed and Dream gets to, you know, swoop in and cause terrible things to happen to someone who is terrible. And then with the cats, um, the kitten is still trapped, but in its dreams, it's free and it's it's asleep when we leave it. And so in that way, it's kind of free. And then uh, Rainy gets the freedom she wanted, although maybe, you know, she shouldn't have wanted it, but um, she does get it. And she does, you know, when she sees Ra's face behind the mask that is the sun, she is ecstatically happy. Um, but as we were talking about before, you know, this relationship between Calliope and Midsummer Night's Dream kind of have a, some parallel things going on as do a dream of thousand cats and uh facade. Well, I think that might be a reason to, to switch the order of facade in a midsummer night's dream, right. To, to actually bookend the collection with the two stories about writers and then put the two stories about characters who are, are suffering, uh, the suffering from things that other people have done to them to put those together. I also think that Midsummer Night's Dream works much better as a last story in this volume because it's the one that's looking forward. It's the one that's looking ahead to other things that we're going to learn about Dream and that are going to come back, that are going to be brought back into the the plot. And then also even the fact that both of uh, then the two stories that are bookending the collection both deal with Greek mythology and Dream's relationship to them. I think that's a nice uh, a nice structure there. And this is uh, not an original idea, right? Because this is what the uh, newly released or recently released radio play adaptation from from Audible has done as well. And we, we should move into that now. But I do want to uh, put a couple caveats on that before we get into it because this we're doing this here because this is the first wrap up episode that we have done since that has. Uh, come out well uh, as new uh, as new installments of these radio plays they are going on and making more come out hopefully they will sync up with our ability to do the wrap-up episodes but because we did preludes and nocturnes and doll's house before this adaptation came out uh, you know they obviously aren't in the wrap-up episode so we are going to do a separate standalone episode on those coming up in a few months so here in this conversation about the radio play adaptation we are not going to talk about the the big things like casting dreams and the other recurring characters and maybe the general tenor of the thing. We're going to talk about just these specific four stories, the way they've been adapted. But I think our entry point here is they did flip this order. They made Midsummer Night's Dream the final story here and Facade the third story. And I liked it a lot better. I liked it a lot better too. Um, And I think particularly because, as you said, Glenn, the first collection we got here in the radio play, the Audible or so the audiobook adaptation is a collection of all of the stories up through the end of dream country and having dream be in the last issue. And so it's about dream. So you start with dream is captured and gets imprisoned in the very beginning of the audiobook, And at the end of the audiobook, dream, um, you know, has this deal worked out with Shakespeare and is able to, um, present this play is it's just it's a nice way to end it versus ending with the dour or kind of sour note of and you know dream missing note of uh facade and there's a lot of people who like elements of facade mainly because you know death is very popular and in some for many people death is a more popular character than dream um i personally 
think as a character, I may like dream more, but as terms of who I'd actually want to interact with, um, <laughs> the personification here, I'd almost rather, inter- I'd rather interact with the personification of death, which is weird. Cause I actually would rather not die anytime soon and instead have many great ideas, um, that I can write. So <laughs> I want what dream has to give me, but I want to hang out with, like, I want to have a beer with death, right? <laughs> right. I mean, there's a 50-50 chance that Dream is just going to storm out of the bar anyway, if you're uh, if you're immortal, right? And point. it's clear that, uh, you know, death is the one who drags him to the pub at the beginning of Men of Good That's Fortune. True. It's his first time getting a drink, I think, was, was that. <laughs> yeah. He's no fun. He's yeah, no fun. He's, he's fun. really no fun. Um, so I think the decision, though, in the radio play to, like, let's have the audiobook called The Sandman not end with not Sandman. And again, in in Dream Country, it's a Sandman collection. It's only four stories long, but the Sandman does not appear in the last issue of your, the sand, like it's, it's a weird decision. Um, It's kind of a dour down note in some ways to end on, even though, you know, Rainey thinks she's getting what she wants still, you know, thinking about suicide and the effect it has on everyone else. Um, It's not, it doesn't leave you feeling great. Um, even though, you know, death is there to make you feel a little bit better, but having Sandman appear in the last issue and then also particularly the standout, um, issue of, you know, you get William Shakespeare and you get all of the great, there's great comedy going on in, of course, Midsummer Night's Dream, the play, and therefore you get some of that comedy replicated in the comic, as well as other additional jokes that Neil is making, about what is happening on and behind and in front of the stage. I really loved A Midsummer Night's Dream, the adaptation that they did here. And I should say, I have only listened to these four issues, these these four stories. I've not listened to Preludes and Nocturnes or uh, Doll's House yet. I think you have, Brent, but I have not. I'm waiting until we actually are going to do that episode in a, in a few months. But I loved the adaptation for A Midsummer Night's Dream. I did not like the adaptation of Facade really at all. So that's another reason I'm glad it doesn't end on that note for me. And in particular what I what I did not like about Facade is the 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 casting or it's really not, I guess, the, the casting. Maybe it's the, the acting choice perhaps, but maybe it is the casting. But but of Rainey and Della, they are way too young or they sound way too young for the story that Gaiman is telling here. And they are they're too bright and too peppy. Even just the the particular moment, for example, when when Rainey answers the phone, she's peppy and upbeat, and she's kind of joking around on the phone with Della with her voice. I mean, the the words are the same. She does not sound broken and haunted, which is what I think she should sound like. And so it really just didn't feel like the story that I had read to me at all. I think that you're you're hitting on something which is is interesting about the audiobook adaptation which is it is an adaptation. And so there's a lot different going on and I think facade is the one where in some ways it's the starkest difference between reading it as a comic versus listening to it as an audiobook. Um for a couple reasons. One, I mean you've highlighted the actress's voice um uh, I think it's Samantha Norton, um, does Rainey and she does sound younger versus in the comic where Rainey appears to be more of a, a woman who's probably, you know, in maybe even her middle ages who looks a lot more fragile and doesn't come across quite as much like a younger kind of frustrated person. 
But I think where the audiobook doesn't work as well for me in Facade as the comic does is Facade features, you know, Element Girl, Draney Blackwell, who has a very distinct look. And I don't think any description of the way that this kind of four color, literally comic superhero character looks can really be conveyed one for one in an audio description versus what is done on the page with pencils and inks and colors. Um, which isn't to say that I disliked facade as an audio story. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, and I, I do want to note here, you know, one of the things that people have heralded about the great thing about there being this audio um, adaptation of Sandman is particularly for people who have a limited ability to see or blind can actually enjoy these stories in ways that they couldn't before. Um, and as someone who's a big fan, as, as you are, Glenn, and as probably our podcast listeners are, of listening to people talk and describe things, there's an enjoyment of that too, right? Of, of listening and receiving art that way. But it, it, it does limit what we get because we're reliant just on the voices doing a lot of the work. And we're limited by, you know, whatever additional details that Neil may give us in the guise of the narrator um, for the stories. And it just doesn't convey kind of how, in some ways, terrible Rainy looks. Not just, not to say that, you know, she's um, kind of a monster the way she thinks she is, but, you know, the four color superheroine, but also just like having and how, you know, gloomy it is to have these shells of masks that we see throughout the panels. And, you know, I talked about my favorite panel for that was the telephone ringing panel and her kind of lurching back that can never be done justice fully in an audio description. Um, I think independent of whoever you cast as the audiobook and know how, no matter how much narration you give it, I don't know that it can do the same thing as the, what can be communicated in the, you know, the panel, which again, it kind of goes back to, you know, pictures worth a thousand words in some way. This was the one weak point I felt with A Midsummer Night's Dream as well, where the fairies just sound like regular people. I kind of wanted them to sound different somehow. Uh, you know, I don't know if that's uh, the actors doing something different is what I wanted, or if it's some kind of, you know, production afterwards, some sort of distortion afterwards, but I wanted them to sound not so human as they they did to kind of convey to convey the the strangeness, to convey the way that they they look. I that I didn't get. That was the one weak point I thought on uh, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, and the one thing I didn't like about Midsummer Night's Dream, although now that you mentioned that I, I agree it'd be nice if there were some different vocal quality or audio quality to the voices of the fairies, if there was something more unearthly about them. But I didn't like the fact um, that, you know, there's a bit where Shakespeare first takes to the stage to deliver the opening lines of the play, and he pauses a beat, and we see him kind of with a drop of sweat, I believe, in the panel. And because you can't convey pauses in that way in audiobooks, I mean, it would just come across like silence. So it's filled with a little bit of narration where Neil describes what's going on in his head, that he's worried about, you know, maybe he's made a mistake and this is such an important thing and he has to not mess this up because he owes dreams so much. Um, and while, you know, I learned from Leslie Klinger's annotated Sandman that 
um, or might have been Hybenderson and Companion. One of the two mentioned that that was an idea in the script. And so the extra narration that Neil reads there for the audiobook is something that he's is language that he's taking from the original script and he's just saying it out loud as opposed to kind of a backstory of what the artist had in drawing the panel. But I liked it where I didn't know. I agree. And I think that what I would have wanted was like a, a pause there of just silence. I mean, not complete silence, but we could hear the crowd you know, growing impatient and so on, but without that narration. But I think that there's an impulse, especially the way that audio dramas are produced today, to not have that much silence, to, to keep the story moving, to keep things going very quickly. And if, in fact, just based on only these four stories, I, 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 it struck me that they were very quick, that they, they took less time to do than I thought they, they would, uh, which didn't bother me uh, generally, uh, but it was just something that I noted. Now, I will say I started this, but we have launched into complaints and <laughs> pointing out things we didn't like about the adaptation. So I want to move us to, to positive things about this adaptation, which by and large, I really loved. I just wanted to get some things about facade off my chest right away. What was your favorite of these stories in terms of the, the adaptations? Which adaptation was your favorite? I probably, A Dream of a Thousand Cats was probably my favorite. I think that the casting there was excellent. Baby New Earth does a really great job as the voice of the Siamese. And, you know, she's just has such a commanding voice um, to deliver the story um, and kind of give it the kind of the regalness that you'd kind of, you know, would expect from that particular Siamese telling this story. Was there one particular you really liked? I really loved Calliope, maybe colored by the fact that it was the first one I listened to, but I thought this was just awesome. I thought the all the voice actors did a great job. Here was a place actually where I thought there was a lot of like pausing in the dialogue and that was allowed to breathe uh, quite a bit. I did also like Gaiman's narration here as well. But I especially liked, which I guess probably is actually my favorite scene in Dream Country, I especially loved hearing performed the bit where he's flooded with ideas and is just saying them all out loud. And as he's, you know, he's dragging his his fingertips against the wall to write them down in blood. That was a scene that I, I loved hearing that performed. So yeah, Calliope was my favorite of these adaptations. I was also uh, struck a little bit with how quickly... The audiobook version of uh, Erasmus Fry speaks relative to my my headcanon version of Erasmus Fry was him kind of being more slow and drawn out when he was talking to make people listen to him longer. Um, and I there's nothing wrong with the fact that it's a faster clip, but it it, it just there's there's a lot more kind of he's a lot sprier sounding. <laughs> <laughs> in the audiobook that, that I had otherwise. And it'll be interesting now when I go back um, and reread these stories again in the future, how much the narration voices may override what my prior voice was. Am I now always going to hear, you know, these particular voice actors doing the voices in my head? I think there's a chance that I will, um, even when there maybe is a little bit of a mismatch. So we'll have to see, and particularly the speed at which I may read through the Erasmus Fry stuff versus him being kind of a, I envision him more to be kind of a cackling old man, um, almost like a crypt keeper kind of like thing. <laughs> well, I think the Erasmus Fry here in the adaptation sounded exactly like I imagined him sounding, you know, quick and spry and fiery and combative. I, I didn't have this sense of him being infirm. I think that maybe, maybe you did. Well, let's. You know, if we're talking about favorites, things we liked. Let's move into our assessment of 
Dream Country as as a whole here. And uh, we'll start by talking about favorite issues. And I'm going to kick us off because Brent, you kicked us off when we did uh, Doll's House. That's kind of the scheme here. We'll go back and forth on these on these wrap ups. And uh, I think that uh, audience probably is expecting me to say a Midsummer Night's Dream here because uh, we spent a long time on it. I think I spent a long time on that episode going on and on and on about how much I love Shakespeare and uh, how much I love the way that Gaiman has taken the text of a Midsummer Night's Dream and woven it in here and brought in all this Greek mythology and is layering stuff in for the future as well. I do love all those things. It is not my favorite issue here in this volume. In fact, it's kind of far from it. My, my favorite issue actually is A Dream of a Thousand Cats, even though that's the episode that is actually the shortest episode we've done, uh, including keeping in mind this one. It's the shortest episode that we've done for Dream Country. It's my favorite story. Of all the issues that we've done so far, this is the issue that I would read if I just came home from work one day and said, you know what? I've got half an hour before dinner's ready. I'm by myself and I would like to read some Sandman. I can read one issue. This is the issue that I would pick. And it is my favorite issue so far. Wow. Um, well, I will join you halfway there, Glenn. Um, Dream of a Thousand Cats is definitely my favorite issue of these four. It's just such a, I mean, even though there's a lot of dark things that happen in it um, and some of the tale that the Siamese tells is so tragic, um, the, the kind of point and takeaway of kind of hope and dreaming about a better future and the ability to collectively get there is something that particularly where we are right now in the early 21st century and all of the problems that we face as humans, um, the ability to collectively try to hope that if we just all take incremental things and do something so simple, we maybe can help turn the tide on a number of different problems that, uh, we're faced with, um, in regards to how people treat each other, as well as in regards to, you know, what is happening to the planet, uh, in part because of, or in large part because of humans themselves. I won't join you though, in saying it's my favorite story so far amongst all of the stories. I think that I still prefer sound of her wings, um, which was my favorite from, um, the last collection, I believe, in Doll's House, um, which is a little bit of a cheat since it's both in a Doll's House and in Preludes. <laughs> but I think I just really like the depiction of death um, in that um, and was so taken by it. And I I enjoyed Dream being his most kind of mopey dream in that where he is not causing um, – you know, terrible things to happen to old lovers of his. Um, but instead he's just moping and then he's being called out for it by his older sister. Um, I really appreciate that story, um, a lot. Um, and I think that if I had to pick, um, then that would still be my favorite so far. Um, but I definitely like dream of a thousand cats. I guess if I'd thought about it, I wouldn't be surprised that neither of us picked Midsummer Night's Dream. But Midsummer Night's Dream is the one of these four stories that won the World Fantasy Award and remains the only comic book, the only visual storytelling to win the World Fantasy Award for short story, which it won in 1991. But I actually think it's my least favorite story in this volume. Where does it rank for you? You know, it's hard for me to try to necessarily put them in all order, but it's definitely... If not my least favorite, it's tied with two or three others. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, that is a mathematically true statement. But, uh, but yeah, it didn't quite strike me. So it is interesting that, and maybe it's because 
of evoking the bard is the reason why it got the attention it got. And we should talk a little bit about the winning of the World Fantasy Award uh, here, because this is actually something that is a bit of a, a controversy. It is the only comic book that has won uh, a World Fantasy Award, either for novel or for short story. And in fact, after it won here in 1991, comics were explicitly banned from those categories as people were actually quite upset that this won, not that it had been nominated, but that it had been, that the, but that it actually won. I guess the idea was that nominating was supposed to be the nod to comics as literature. And I think that that actually is why A Midsummer Night's Dream was chosen, because this is the one where Gaiman is kind of jumping up and down and saying, hey, look, Shakespeare's fantasy too, right? That if Shakespeare is extolled as being the greatest writer in the history of the English language, well, guess what? He wrote fantasy stories. And so if you think Shakespeare's great, you have to let us in the canon too. So it gets nominated. I think that's why it's nominated, not because it was regarded as being the, even the, you know, the best Sandman issue of that year, I guess, because neither you nor I think that it was. Uh, and maybe other people, maybe most people do. Maybe, uh, you know, and in fact, I would love to hear people uh, chime in about this on the forum. But there was this real controversy that it it won. It was nominated against some some other great stories. There's Terry Bisson on there. Uh, great Thomas Ligotti story, The the Last Feast of Harlequin. Uh, we do a lot of Ligotti over on Elder Sign. We haven't done that story yet. We probably really should. And I don't know if we're going to do that in the network. We might as well do all the stories that were nominated for uh, Best World uh, Best Short Story in the World Fantasy Award in uh, 1991. Someday we can throw those up on Patreon or something. But I do think that that's why this one was chosen. Uh, it was because of it being so much about how fantasy writers are real writers and fantasy literature is real literature. That's an excellent point, Glenn. And I hadn't really thought of that before, but I think you're right. And so, you know, the argument at the time, um, and so later when the World Fantasy Award administrators kind of clarified the position of comics and graphic novels, they said there wasn't a rule before because um, we did give it to the Sandman. But here is the new rule. The new rule is that comics are eligible in the special award professional category. And then they said they never made a change to the rules, even though they made a change to the rules by announcing that there was a new rule. Because if you make a new thing, you have changed the things. <laughs> that's a change. Um, <laughs> maybe the writers don't understand that, but that's how that works. Um, but it is notable that even though they're saying the special award category is where you would recognize comics or graphic novels, at no time as of recording this has any person won or been nominated for a comic or graphic novel in that category, which means that, you know, they did give this one to comics outside of that. And then people then they later said, no, no, comics can't win for the category it won for short story. It's got its own special category that it competes with other things for. However, we're never finding anything worthwhile in comics to ever even nominate for that, which is it's nonsense. Um, and it's kind of it, it's perpetuating some really terrible kind of patterns of, you know, if you think it's nonsense that fantasy isn't considered real literature, which that is a nonsense position. Um, it's equally nonsense to say that, like, comics aren't also literature because they are. Let's talk about this 
special professional category here for the World Fantasy Awards and what sorts of things do get nominated. But I, I do have to correct you a little bit, Brent, because yeah, Gaiman actually has been nominated for the World Fantasy Award in that category for the Sandman, but it was the, the Sandman Overture uh, from 2016, oh, okay. which was which we, you know, perhaps we'll get to someday, but did did not win it. Um, but, you know, it was, that was 25 years later, right? Before another comic book was nominated and distinctly did not win. But this category is really here for it's here for editors and publishers, uh, anthologists, uh, people who who work on magazines, right? It's not really for the people who are writing stories, though occasionally people who are writers do get nominated simply under the uh, heading of contributions to the, the, the genre, though usually I think what that means is that they also are doing editing and doing other things. Um, people who actually run writing workshops, for example, get nominated for this award. People who put together companion books. In fact, Leslie Klinger, someone we invoke a lot here, right, who did the annotated Sandman, has been nominated for um, at least one of his annotations. Uh, the annotated Frankenstein, I think, is the one that he got nominated for, though I don't think that he won for that either. But those are the sorts of things that go in this category. If it's a story, it should go in the story category is my feeling. And and I think that that's how people voting are going to feel too. So I just don't think that a comic is ever going to win in this in this category which is a a shame yeah no i think it's a i don't think it's the proper category i think if you want to give it its own category because again i think there is there's limitations both ways there's limitations to what you if you're not doing a comics where you have the benefit of the art and the panel structure combined with the prose then you don't have the benefits there but also you have additional limitations because you're actually presenting to someone an image of how things look. Although um, you mentioned that I was wrong about the 2016, um, but I, looking at this, the information I had was even wrong that there wasn't something before that because apparently there was a nomination for uh, Batman Gothic in 1993, which was a comic book written by Grant Morrison and illustrated by Klaus Johnson, uh, Jansen, at least according to, I'm looking at the Wikipedia listing of winners and nominees. So, so it's a rare thing, we'll say that, um, given the number of great comics um, that have come out, that very few there are there. And most of the things, as you said, in this category are more editing things and, and kind of collections and anthologies and commentaries and less. And sometimes they're films, though. Yeah, films, a couple of musical productions. And, and in fact, some of the things that have been nominated have actually been works of scholarship as well. So I don't know, someday maybe I can uh, write a book about speculative fiction and uh, there'll be a chance I can get nominated for that. Uh, although, you know, I would happily lose to a comic book if that were the if that were the case. Well, let's uh, let's keep talking favorites here, Brent. So who was your favorite non-dream character in Dream Country? This was a tough one because um, we... in. We'd spend a lot of intense time here, Glenn, with lots of characters, but they're only for like an issue and then we don't see them again, right? So we don't get to see someone over the course of multiple issues. Um, also, a lot of the people we meet are terrible, um, at least right away at the top. Um, but I think my favorite character, who's the non-dream character, and maybe it's also related to the fact that I like the issue so much, is the Siamese cat in um, Dream of a Thousand <laughs> Cats. Um, I think yeah. her tale... You know, it's a tragic tale and she kind of makes an impassioned plea. Um, but, you know, as her way as like cat messiah here and trying to, you know, keep rolling the boulder up the hill that will never probably be rolled of getting a thousand cats to have one unified thought and action. Um, 
I, I, I really admire her kind of making the most of her pain for the benefit of herself and her fellow cats, even if some of that also is maybe the desire for revenge or vengeance. It comes across less so, though, as revenge or vengeance and more kind of frustration with where the cats are and their relative lot in life as being at the mercy of humans and her desire for that to be different, not really necessarily for herself as the future of cat kind. Um, and I really also like the way she's depicted artistically. So I'm not surprised by this. We are cat people. I don't know that we've said that on the air. We probably did in that issue, but you know, we're cat people. So we're, we're we're drawn to this story. The real question, Brent, is, is she your favorite character who is not Dream so far? No, I think Gilbert um, still is heads and heads and hats um, uh, <laughs> above her. He's almost he stands above her as if she is but a cat. But he has Gilbert has the advantage of, again, having multiple issues for us to see him kind of being witty and mysterious and then witty and action posy and kind of the hero of the day in some parts. And then, you know, the Fiddler Green reveal. So we get to see, you know, more about his character than we do her. But what about you, Glenn? Who was your favorite character from these four issues? Well, I will start by saying that my favorite character so far is still also G.K. Chesterton. And I suspect, I think there's a real good chance that's going to be my answer when we close out the whole series, which will be real interesting because we'll then see how uh, the the volume of the Doll's House sort of ranks uh, when, we, uh, when we're all done as well. But, you know, it might be interesting, you know, this is the second time we've had Shakespeare. It's not spoiling anything. We've said it before that to say that Shakespeare will show up again. So maybe once we've seen Shakespeare more, maybe I'll pick Shakespeare. But uh, yeah, it's still Gilbert's still my absolute favorite. But in this volume, my favorite character was uh, the other sympathetic protagonist, which is to say Urania Blackwell, Rainey. I I found her really compelling, right? She's this traumatized victim of a senseless Cold War. And then she's just medically discharged from her service and cared for in some sense. I mean, she's given some kind of, you know, disability pension that she can live on, but she's not given any mental health care. And this is a story that is a real story that all too many people in our country and our world have. They are traumatized by the service they give to their country and then are not really taken well care of after that service. So it's a real tragedy and that resonates with me. So yeah, Rainy Blackwell is my my favorite character, or at least perhaps the most compelling character might be the better way to put it for me in this volume. And I'm really glad to have the story facade. It, it probably was my second favorite story in the volume. Yeah, it's a really great story. And um, she is a really great character. Um and we get so much out of her in, you know, those few pages that we have. Um, and, you know, Neil gives us her entire backstory, essentially almost as presented in the comics that she was even in um, and makes us have a real sense of where she's at. And I think um, I hadn't fully thought about it, Glenn, um, until you mentioned it, but the idea of her as kind of symbolic of what all kind of disabled veterans may kind of feel, particularly um, if their disability is causing such hardship and kind of pain um, that they're completely isolated and into themselves um, and kind of dealing with their own kind of post-traumatic stress kind of situation. It, it's, it makes it a story that may, you know, kind of stand the test of time far beyond 
um, you know, kind of recurring themes throughout um, history. Well, I think this is why I had such a negative reaction to the portrayal of this character in the the audio drama, that it just didn't seem like it was the same story, didn't seem like it was the same character, because we clearly, because we just weren't getting that reading of, of the story where she sounds bubbly and peppy and bright instead of broken and damaged and traumatized. I mean, I guess really, Facade for me is a hard-boiled story about someone coming home from war and not being able to adjust, not being able to deal with it and suffering for it, uh, dying because of it. And that just didn't carry over into the audio adaptation for me. But I did overall like the the audio adaptation, the radio play. So I will not belabor that anymore. And uh, let's uh, let's talk about our favorite panels. I'm going to go first here again, and I'm going to bring us back to Dream of a Thousand Cats. I think we just keep doing this. Uh, the Desert of Bones was my favorite panel in this entire volume. I just love the cat standing on this Desert of Bones. I wish that I had this hanging in my living room. What I really wish is that I lived in a much larger house and had a much larger living room and then had like a, you know, 20 foot long version of this hanging above my TV. Well, we could probably even put next to it my favorite panel, which is, um, and maybe this will be a surprise, Glenn, given where we've already discussed this issue and kind of where it fell relative to the other ones. But um, my favorite panel, I think I'm going to have to go with from a Midsummer Night's Dream, actually. Um, and it's Wendell opening his door. And I think because when I think about the magical realism elements of a whole bunch of authors writing, but particularly Neil Gaiman, this is one of the things that to me kind of grabs it perfectly, which is here you have something that you've seen times and time, time and time before, and then you see it in a slightly different way. So it's not a man who is standing on a hill or maybe a man with a couple sticks, but it's a man who then is standing in front of a door and he opens the door to let forth um, from the barely on the other side kind of side of the curtain or door, um, the fair, the fairy folk um, who come to visit and, and see this play. Um, and I really love that image. Um, um, but it is a lot brighter color wise um, and a lot warmer. So it might work really well juxtaposed with the, um, Midsummer Night or uh, Dream of a Thousand Cats image. Yeah, I like the contrast here the the, the brightness versus the kind of uh, washed out feel that the uh, the Desert of Bones has. Well, let's uh, let's talk covers now that we're on art. What was your favorite cover? Uh, my favorite cover, and it was tough because there really some excellent covers throughout. But I think I'm going to go with a Dream of a Thousand Cats as my cover, and it's for a couple reasons. I really like the color. Um, I really like the cat kind of looking like it's jumping slash flying slash escaping. Um, but I also really like here Dave McKeon doing his mixed media um, uh, work in which there's, you know, the, there's the what he's painted with his acrylic inks and varnish. But there's also the frame that he has used um, in the picture. What was your favorite cover? Well, I went with facade and and. Not for any elaborate reason. I went with facade simply because it's creepy, and I like it, and I'd like to hang it up in my my home. The yeah, the creepiness of it is really the, what I liked. Though I will say my runner up probably was a dream of a thousand cats, and my runner up was facade until the last second. I couldn't decide, <laughs> but I'm like, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> well, the last thing we need to do here before we close out on this episode and this volume of the the Sandman, and also this year, is to uh, rank the volumes of the Sandman that we have read so far, the three that we have read so far. 
How do you rank them now that we've got Dream Country in the mix, Brent? And I don't remember, so I might be called out later for how I ranked the prior two relative to each other. <laughs> Stakes are high here, Brent. Stakes are high. <laughs> you know, I like a lot about Dream Country. I think because it only has four issues, that makes it suffer. Also because, as we talked about, there's a lot we learn about Dream, surprisingly a lot we learn about Dream, given his limited panel space in these issues. But he doesn't have any character arc throughout these. Um, we don't see movement. And unfortunately, we don't see character arcs for anyone outside of individual issues. So while I like a lot of these issues, and in many ways, I might still recommend, um, similar to maybe, you know, young Brent's first experience with Sandman, it may even be like, hey, if you want to pick up a trade just to give a taste of different bits of what Sandman is like, go ahead and read Dream Country because you get four very kind of unique stories. Um, I think it might be my least favorite, though, in the context of us rereading the entire series because there's just there's not as much happening in terms of kind of the major arcs of any of these characters. But I don't know that that could be helped no matter what you did, given who you have in here. And I don't mean to say that as a diminishment of the collection, because, again, I think all of the individual issues are great. And I think the collection itself does strangely hang together hang together. And as we've talked about today, it actually hangs together with some unified themes far better than I think I've realized before. Um, but it just, I think it's my third favorite. And then this is where, um, listeners are going to call me out when I mess this up, but let's say <laughs> preludes and nocturnes is my first favorite and then doll's house and then dream country. So it looks like we've got a downward trajectory, <laughs> but, um, spoilers, um, that's going to change with the next volume. If it plays out the way my memory has it, but where does dream country sit for you relative to the other two, Glenn? Well, you did change your mind. Uh, you did say Dal's house above Preludes and Nocturnes last time, but you did hem and haw about it. So, you know, it's, I think it's fair to go back and forth. I, yeah, I expected you to put Dream Country in the middle, actually, between Dal's house and Preludes and Nocturnes. But uh, for me, it's on top. Uh, and, and by a pretty wide margin, I think, actually. And I know you're predicting that Season of Mist is going to be the thing that's going to come out on top for you. I actually think Dream Country is going to be my favorite volume of the Sandman for quite a while. Uh, but I am also someone who loves short stories. I prefer short stories to novels, uh, just generally speaking. And I also just think that Gaiman is better at writing short stories than writing novels, which isn't to say I love every Gaiman short story more than I love every Gaiman novel or something like that. But I do think that he is a stronger short story writer than a novel writer. And I just think that every story in here is uh, a masterpiece. Uh, not always enjoyable, not always going to be the comfort reading, you know, sort of thing that we talked about a little bit. Uh, but I think this is a masterpiece collection. I think this is a, a collection of masterpiece short stories that could rival uh, any short story collection by the, you know, world's greatest writers, uh, you know, past and present. Uh, I think it's an, a, a real triumph. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think it really is a triumph. And He's able to do so much, and each of these stories, again, we've talked about how there are some themes and motifs that kind of run throughout, but um, each one being a standalone and immediately grabbing you within the first page or two and having you intimately know and care about all of the players in each of the little um, you know, vignettes that we have throughout, it, it really is a masterwork of short stories in that way. 
Yeah, yeah, and I do suspect that it is going to stay atop my list until we get the next collection of short stories, which <laughs> which has more more which has more issues in it. And so they're just you know on the math that you were doing earlier, kind of thinking of desert island rules there, Brent. I think that that will probably win out, but we'll see. I mean, it's of you know no consequence unless someone wants to play a drinking game about it, which I always uh, always uh, support. But uh, I think now that we're uh, uh, I think now that I am wanting to make drinking games, it might be time for us to go get a drink too after over two hours of this. So that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums uh, or our subreddit and let us know what you thought of Dream Country. Where does it fit as a whole with all of the other Sandman connect, uh, collections? Uh, do you see Desire permeating bits of the panels, even if uh, <laughs> Desire doesn't actually make an actual appearance? Um, or have you gone ahead and taken one of Richard Maddock's cast off ideas that Dream briefly gave to him and written a short story or a poem or a epic uh, work of 20 hour film that you want to direct us to. We'd be happy to hear or read any of that. Um, so please go ahead. Uh, or if you want to call me out for incorrectly remembering the order that I had previously had these in um, and tell me why I'm wrong. I'm sure I am. So go ahead and let me know. But Clay Temple Media, uh, our forums again at claytemplemedia.com or our subreddit. Well, as is our custom, we are going to go on vacation over the winter holidays. So now is a great time to check out some of our other shows. If you don't already listen to ATAS and Elder Sign and Lower Decks and the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast, uh, please do that. And you can also join us on Patreon and get immediate access to about 50 bonus episodes. These can uh, keep you company for a long time if you know maybe you're traveling for the holidays or something like that. But as also is our custom, we are going to take a little break from the Sandman now that we have come to the end of a volume. So we're going to be back on January 13th with the short story October in the Chair, which you can find in Fragile Things. This was chosen by our Patreon supporters. And then after that, we're going to do episodes on the short story Chivalry, also chosen by our Patreon supporters. We will do an episode on the other two radio play adaptations of uh, Preludes and Nocturnes and The Doll's House. And then we're also going to take our cue from Dream Country and check out one of Rudyard Kipling's fairy stories that feature Puck. Uh, that's going to be the story Dimchurch Flit. Uh, I do kind of wish, actually, that we had taken this type of cue uh, regarding Gilbert from the Doll's House, so maybe we'll we'll do that on another break, Brent. But then we will get back to Sandman on May 12th with the first issue of Season of Mists. So, until next time, pleasant dreams. <laughs> <laughs>